I'm Megan Rosenthal. And I'm Alexis Lee. And this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Mayo Lab podcast, and welcome back to our viewers to our second episode in the lovely uh, University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're so thrilled to be here. It's been very exciting. Um, We have felt very at home and welcome, so we love it here. Um, And we are joined today with Dr. Nick McAfee, um, and he will introduce himself and tell him about us, um, or about himself. We will not talk about him in front of him, but we are so thrilled to start the conversation on stigma in the mental health-specific arena. Um, So, Dr. McAfee, welcome to the podcast, and if you'll just give us a little overview of kind of your background, how you got here, and why mental health specifically um, was your field of choice. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not originally from Mississippi. I'm originally from Savannah, Missouri, which if you haven't heard of it, it's about an hour north of Kansas City, Missouri. And I, for whatever reason, I I think about this a lot of how did I get into this field? And honestly, I think it's as simple as I just was kind of interested in psychology all the way back in high school. So I tracked along that way, and it was sometime during the early part of college where a couple folks that I was pretty close to and that I knew actually were dealing with pretty severe substance use disorders. And um, I got to speak to them kind of before and after treatment. And it was intriguing to me, their stories. And so I wanted to learn more about that. Um, Time goes along, I get involved in research labs, decide, yeah, basic science isn't for me. I actually want to help people directly. Mm -hmm. Um, So end up getting my PhD in counseling psychology, kind of focused specifically on substance use um, and management of that and helping people make positive changes in their life. Um, And that kind of led me to internship in Jackson, Mississippi, where I ended up getting my degree, staying on as a faculty member. um, And transition more a little bit into the broader student mental health domain. Um, So I started with substance use, kind of transitioned to this more broad mental health practitioner role. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of leads me to where I am today, looking at both well-being and substance use, um, and super excited to be working with the students at Ole Miss. Uh, We are very excited to have you. Um, So to dive in right away, in your own words, can you kind of tell us big definition, like, technically and definition wise, what is mental health? And then also as a caveat, there's these words kind of flying around well-being, mental well-being, you know, mental wellness. Are those the same? Are they different? How have we kind of evolved in that area? Uh, yeah, the, this is a million dollar question. I feel like if you wait another week, you'll get another term right? that yeah. we need to learn or a subtle change in them. Um, this is, I think, a fantastic question because it's so hard to disentangle these terms. Um, I think in many ways, they're obviously related. When I think about mental health, um, I honestly think about somewhat of a failing of my profession. Because when we think about mental health, we don't think about it as a glass half full type of Mm. construct. We think of the deficiency of mental health. So when we're talking about our mental health, it's usually of what we don't have and what we wish we had. Um, Mental wellness, I think, is probably pretty similar to that. But I think one of the big differences between wellness, well-being, and mental health um, is really that it's a much more broad concept. So, yeah, mental health definitely goes underneath that umbrella of well-being and wellness, but it's only maybe one domain. So you've got physical wellness and well-being. You might have financial, spiritual, so on and so forth. If you look it up on the Internet, you're going to find about six different models. Some <laughs> of them have five domains. Some of them have like 12 Um 
So I think that's one of the big differences. So wellness and well-being seems to be a little bit more glass half full approach. Mm. What can I do to improve my well-being? What can I do um, to improve my quality of life? Whereas mental health is more of like what diagnosis might I have or what problems do I have? So I think that's a couple of the main differences. I think that the one of the reasons that we started by asking you about those definitions is because there's so much confusion in the broader world and conversations about what these terms mean and how we can start um, making changes in our own lives to achieve that goal of whatever that wellness looks like. But I think one of the things that you point out there is that at thinking through those domains of like financial and physical and mental what it looks like for you and what it looks like for me are not the same, right? Because we are different people in different spaces um, and, and have different expectations and, and, and all of those different kinds of things about what our lives ought to be. And I think, you know, diving into that a little bit further in the topic of conversation for this uh, fall session of the of the podcast is around stigma and and so from your perspective as it relates to mental health what are what is what is the definition or understanding that you bring to the table of stigma and how do that how does that stigma or stigmas impact mental health in your work with college age students yeah um, I think there's with stigma kind of as most people think of it is usually this um, internalized belief towards the negative. And when we're talking about mental health, so internalized belief that there's something maybe bad or wrong about talking about mental health or how you feel, or that there might be something wrong or bad about seeking out help formally from someone aside from a peer or a family member. Um, so I think generally speaking, that's how we can talk about stigma. Um, so it can be this internalized belief, but it may not be one that we actually have conscious access to. So um, I think that complicates things because there might be some folks who say, no, I don't really have a problem with it. This is fine. I'm, I'm happy to talk about my feelings. And then behavior may not actually reflect that mm -hmm. because we all have internalized unconscious biases. Mm -hmm. um, and stigma towards talking about our feelings and mental health and seeing a mental health provider happens to be one of those domains that that could fit into. Um, so how does it affect people I've worked with, I think this is the positive end of the spectrum. I think mm -hmm. this has been such a difficult topic to address for so many years. And I think we're finally seeing some fantastic headway in the sense that folks I work with under the age of 25, ain't no big thing to talk about how I feel and um, maybe to whomever that's close to them or maybe not so close to them. It's just so much more normalized now mm -hmm. versus folks who, um, let's just say in older generations might have a much harder time because it wasn't as normalized. It wasn't as much um, part of society really, or any part of conversations we're having in a broader scene to say, Hey, I don't feel very good today. And it's not because my leg hurts or I'm sore here. It's because I kind of feel sad. Um, I think that conversation's changing a lot and I'm seeing that in the um, just a lot of the students that I've been working with over the past few years. I think that's absolutely fascinating because we certainly, I, I won't speak for Alexis, I certainly came to this conversation and assuming that that stigma was still something, you know, internally for our student population was something that we were still battling against, that they weren't interested or couldn't fathom how to have conversations about their feelings. Um, so I guess I have a couple of questions, but my first question around that is, what do you think has changed generation to generation that has enabled this population of, of young people to have more comfort in having in starting those conversations at least? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I suppose it's an empirical one. Someone's probably asked the question and studied it, and I just haven't seen it. But from my own kind of anecdotal perspective, it just seems like it's this – slow, subtle change that we see across generations um, 
in different domains too. Mm-hmm. But I just think that as time's gone along, people have maybe understood the importance of expressiveness. Um, in the background has kind of been the mental health revolution where um, it's more than just, you know, secretly seeing your psychiatrist to get right. your prescription refilled. And that's the extent of, you know, the mental health services that are provided to you. So I think that normalization is in the background. Um, and I just, and I don't know how much effect the pandemic has had where people have just been so, um, I think this is one of the the double-edged swords of social media is it's just so um, common for folks to share, here's what's going on in my life. Um, Here's also maybe the not so good. And so it's been normalized via that platform, especially among Gen Z. Um, But yeah, how what's actually specifically happened, I think, is super complicated, but something definitely has where mm-hmm. um, if you look at just different attitudes, some of the literature on this shows, like there is a huge difference when you ask people who are, for example, baby boomers versus Gen Z or maybe even millennials, you know, what are your thoughts about this? Um, I don't know that they're diametrically opposite or opposed from one another, but they're very different in terms of permissiveness or um, openness towards talking about mental health or willingness to seek a provider. The other thing that this makes me think about, because I I love the perspective that you've taken to the work that you've done in alignment with, for those, like, kind of the positive psychology movement. Mm -hmm. Like, we're looking at this from the perspective of of glass half full. You're not deficient, but we're just trying to add to, you know, and and assuming that kind of baseline, like, um, what's the right word? The baseline kind of level that you're at around these things. And I think about what you just talked about as it relates to this permissiveness of the current generation of of students out there in relation to all of the news that we've heard around like the the health or the mental health epidemic that we're facing and all of these bad things that have come, you know, really were ramping up pre-pandemic, but really came to the fore in terms of the news media kind of post-pandemic. Like everything has been related back to like the pandemic has caused all of these kinds of things. How do you how do you reconcile those, right? This idea that students are now more comfortable having these conversations than they might have been in the past, but then also that we're seeing this like growth, this like explosion of, you know, diagnoses of depression or diagnoses of anxiety or or all of those kind of concurrent conditions in this space? It's the billion dollar question um, and maybe trillion dollar question because there is not an answer to how how do we figure this out. We have all of these people who are now more open than ever <laughs> and probably the most at-risk generation for mental health concerns probably that we know about in terms of like recorded, you know, scientific history. Um which is, of course, very modernly biased. But that's a great question. How do we reconcile this? I don't know that there are a lot of good answers, but I think when it comes to, it's it's good that people are willing to see their provider, but this is something that I've been doing a lot of thinking about too, which was, you're exactly right. Um, if you talk to any um, college administrator at any university college, community college, anywhere across the United States, they'd say, yeah, the pandemic made things worse, but it was already getting pretty bad. Mm -hmm. Um, This was just something that people weren't paying attention to. Like you're saying, news media has picked it up, and I think that's really important. Um, But this isn't something that just sprung up overnight. Um, For at least the past decade, probably the past two decades, we've seen a consistent rise in Mm -hmm. diagnoses. Um, Fortunately, we've also seen a consistent rise in people seeking services. But the issue being, there's only so many people to actually see them. So um, while we're glad people are coming out and finding us, um, our wait lists are getting much longer. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you're a psychologist, psychiatrist, uh, master's level therapist, any sort of mental health provider, it's getting difficult. So in the face of people having less stigma, we're also needing to rethink 
how do we reshape our services to make sure that people who are wanting help, who need help, can actually mm-hmm. get it? And I think that you bring up a really important point there, right? And and we talk about this in some of the work that I've done in other spaces. Like you kind of have one shot. So when somebody comes and, and has finally decided, okay, I need some assistance, and then it's, oh, but it's six months before you can get in, or it's six weeks before you can get in, um, that that lag time really has a negative impact on, on patient outcomes because you have to assume that they're going to have the, the guts to come back again, that they're going to be in the same kind of place, that they haven't, you know, solved, quote unquote, their problem in some other maybe negative kind of way in the meantime. So from your perspective, what are some things, and I know that we, this is a big complicated problem that is decades in the making really, right? Um, And is not going to be solved overnight. And I appreciate and love your honesty in answering that question saying, I don't know, because I think sometimes we assume that folks should, with fancy letters after their names and really great degrees should have all of these answers, but we just don't know yet. So from your perspective, what are things that we can start to do to chip away at some of those things, knowing that overnight we're not going to get a crop of, you know, a million psychologists, counselors, et cetera, that can really be working one-on-one with these with these people who are seeking these services? You know, I think it really does go back to your point about stigma. Even if we're more likely to talk about this stuff, it doesn't mean that communities or families as a whole are open to it. Um, so, well, yeah, I absolutely recommend go talk to a therapist if you feel like you need to talk to somebody. And we also, for many, many thousands of years, had didn't really have therapists. We had communities. We had our parents, our extended family, our friends, our social circles, people to confide in. Um, and I think there's still stigma that kind of lurks underneath the surface in these social structures, whether it be small or large, <laughs> to where um, it might make it difficult to talk. And then your only then your only resource, if you want to talk to somebody, is to seek it out formally. And I think a lot of people obviously should um, and should take advantage of that. And there might be some folks who could benefit if they didn't wait until they felt like, oh wow, I feel like I'm actually depressed. Mm-hmm. Whereas whenever they're first starting to feel maybe some sort of signs of feeling low or down or disinterested in things to go reach out and talk to somebody to Mm -hmm. make that connection. Um, So I think addressing stigma in broader, more social domains is important. And obviously there's been a lot of headway in that too. Um, But I've heard a lot of stories from my own patients who talk about, yeah, you're really the only person I can talk to about this concern. Um, Or I can't talk to my parents about this because X, Y, and Z reasons. Whether they're founded in reality or not isn't really important. And, you know, if if parents would actually be upset or not, I imagine many of them wouldn't be upset. And I imagine a few would be. But the important point is, is that even if people don't have that stigma themselves, they worry about the people around them judging them for talking about it. Or maybe have been given explicit messaging around, we don't talk about this. So I think that's an important part of the conversation to get people access to their communities in addition to access to mental health care too. Yeah. And I want to talk about a little bit the idea of like being afraid to bring it up at home Mm -hmm. or in your community around there. And I know a lot of parents are listening to this podcast and they're thinking, well, I would be so open if my child would come to me, but it might be the subliminal messaging or unconscious communication. What would you suggest or how in your opinion to kind of open those doors at home, in your home, or in your community to say, hey, I'm open and I, I won't judge or try and take that first step. Well, I think, you know, in the name of 
breaking down stigma. I'll share a personal story. I won't name names in terms of family members, but I'll give you an example of what it looked like to get that explicit messaging among family members who I bet you if you asked them today would say, no, no, you can come to us about anything. Um, and I do believe them. It's just, it's, we have these beliefs about ourselves and sometimes those unconscious biases come through. Mm -hmm. So I think I was about 12 years old. I was currently in the process of getting my swimming merit badge in Boy Scouts and being the little perfectionist that I was, mm -hmm. I wanted to be perfect at it. But I was terrified of lifting my head above the water because I thought I would inhale a bunch of water. Mm -hmm. um, so I somehow managed to hold my breath the entire way back and forth, <laughs> which on the rubric, which I had a really good teacher on the rubric for the merit badge, I wasn't technically passing the skill. I wasn't doing it correctly. So no matter how hard I tried, I could not get my head to come up above water. And at the end, I couldn't get the merit badge, which made sense to me, uh, but I was so upset. And so mm -hmm. in front of these other boys and some other family members, I started to cry. I was mm -hmm. super, super upset about it. And the family member who will go unnamed, who I care about a lot and is a very kind person, looked at me and said, don't ever embarrass me like that again. And it was, so, it was so powerful to me because I learned in that moment, I can't do this. I should not mm -hmm. show external emotion. Mm -hmm. So that's coming from someone who I know is a caring, compassionate person who I've talked about other struggles with before. Mm -hmm. um, so we like to think good things about ourselves, but sometimes there's some reality. And I, I don't even know if this family member would remember that. It's probably just a blip on the radar. So when it comes to talking to kids, I think it's really making sure that you take a good hard look in the mirror mm -hmm. at what have I done to actively facilitate this? Have I actually reached out to my kids proactively just to check in with them? Of course, kids, when you do that, it might mm -hmm. not give you anything, but do I continue to proactively reach out to them? So I think it comes back to that whole point of, yeah, we like to think of ourselves in a positive way. And that's probably a good thing that we do, mm -hmm. but it may not be accurate. And we need to make sure that if we think we're doing a good job, that maybe we actually ask our kids uh, as parents, reach out to our children and, and open up that conversation, even if it's just incremental um, and doesn't lead to anything the first or second time, but making sure that that door is always open and making sure you can kind of track what you're doing to say, yes, I have definitely asked my kids about how they're doing. Mm -hmm. I've asked them about how they're feeling as opposed to, I think I have, or mm. I think they're doing okay. Yeah. I love that. And I want to circle back too, to something else you said earlier about waiting or asking earlier before it's too late, coming forward before it's too late. What I kind of like a, how would, how do people know? Like, how do they know of maybe I've been feeling different, but what if it's just a bad day kind of thing? Like how can parents or students even register, self-identify themselves um, on the radar of when should I speak up? When is too late? Too late. And then also on the flip end for parents of when you start noticing changes in your student, how, how long do you wait or when do you address those and how do you have those conversations? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, and of course, there's going to be a point to where it's like, you don't know, and that's a great time to reach out to somebody who's you know, got the education and is paid to know this mm -hmm. stuff. And, you know, if it's, if, if you're noticing your mood has changed for a couple of days, right. Um, that could be changing the weather. It could be, it's been cloud. I know for me, for example, I am so sensitive to mm -hmm. lack of sunlight. Mm -hmm. So I know mm -hmm. that whenever it's been a cloudy couple of days in the spring and I'm like, yeah, I'm really dragging. It's like, Oh, it's been raining. Um, so I've kind of learned that over time, but I didn't always know that. Mm -hmm. And so I think the answer to that is honestly paying a lot of attention to ourselves, which we are not really neurologically set up to do all that well. Mm -hmm. Um, so it takes a lot of practice in that domain. So paying attention, um, 
having that connection socially to reach out to people. So that way, if you know you're talking about something, um, maybe your friends can give you some advice or give you some feedback. Because sometimes our friends know more about us or family know more about Mm -hmm. us than we know about ourselves. We're pretty poor at self-reflection and assessment, unfortunately. So doing that. um, And, you know, if you felt pretty poorly for a couple weeks or more and you're noticing I'm not interested in things or I'm just more nervous about stuff that usually doesn't bother me, I think that's time to maybe reach out. You know, if it's lasted half a month, that's a lot of times that's, especially for depression, if more than half the time for half a month you felt down, reach out to somebody. You might actually be in the middle of a depressive episode. But if it's been a couple days, maybe it's just worth talking to somebody and getting ahead of it and at least expressing those emotions. I think I, I love how we've kind of bent and, and melded this conversation into those more practical things that folks mm-hmm. can start to do. Cause that's really, you know, one of the goals that Alexis and I started the conversation for this series season about is like, okay, what is, what is the stuff we can do right now? We don't have all the answers, but we have some good stuff that's in place already around, you know, thinking and doing check-ins and accessing resources. And I wanted to take a second to do, cause something you just said, you know, peaked in my mind and absolutely I fully and completely admit struggle with oftentimes is that self-assessment. So what are things that folks can do from from the perspective of, of our parents that are listening? Um, but then also, you know, for, for students who might be listening or parents of students who they can kind of pass through that information, what are things that we can do to figure out how to make that pause and do that real honest self-assessment? Because it's obviously hard to do, but what are things that we can do to kind of get that process going? I think it goes back to that point of individualization that we were talking about initially is that everybody might have a different way of doing this. Um, You know, I've heard a lot about folks who come to me talking about how they're journaling. There are certainly ways to journal about how you feel. Um, Some ways that may be more helpful than others, but just writing about stuff, Mm -hmm. we know, (laughs) to put it simply, can actually be really effective. Um, So jotting down like how how today was, what are some of the things you remember feeling? or having regular check-ins with um, your friends just to talk about your day. Maybe it's not like specifically focusing on how you felt, but kind of just reflecting or that process of here's what's been going on in my life or over the past week or so. So I think connection with other people is actually a good way to check in with ourselves because Mm -hmm. inevitably they're asking about us and Mm -hmm. we have to tell them. Um, Or even something more regimented. Some folks just like to keep Um, not necessarily a journal per se, but maybe more like um, a checklist of what happened today or how did I feel today? What did I notice? Um, There's also, it's not necessarily checking in, but it's actually a fantastic way of reflecting on the positives, Um, an intervention called Three Good Things. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people in the wellness domain have heard of this. It's probably the most simplistic intervention that also we know from an evidence-based perspective actually does help people feel better if they do it consistently enough. Um, So I don't necessarily, I guess, need to get out in the weeds on three good things, but writing good things about your day Mm -hmm. and what's been going on, not only is a good way to check in with yourself, but actually is a nice way to bias yourself in favor of the positive in your Mm -hmm. life, as opposed to what we might do when we're feeling down, which is look at all the bad things and overgeneralize them and kind of feel like, oh, I'm stuck in all this terrible stuff. Um, So I think those are just some general ways that people can check in. 
those are all really great examples. And I will share too, most of those are things I've certainly engaged in in my past. Um, and I want to talk just for a second, pause on the three good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I know, I think I know, at least anyway, that there was a certain amount of time that you have to engage in that because you say doing mm-hmm. it regularly. So what is that amount of time? So we're getting, because we're getting specific with mm-hmm. our listeners this year. What is, what is this amount of days in a row that you need to do that before you've got those neural pathways created so that you're biased in that positive direction? Yeah. So I said, we're not getting in the weeds. Let's get in the weeds. Let's get in the weeds. No, we're getting specific here for folks. I think that's a really important question because I love specificity too. And you're also highlighting a more general point, which is like this wellness stuff, this mental health stuff, it's not a one-off thing. Right. Um, So I love lots of wellness stuff and I am very guilty of being like, I did it this week and now I'm done and I don't really feel that different, but it was nice when I did it. Three good things. We know probably at least a month of consistent writing every day. Of course, it's three good things. It takes probably maybe five minutes out of your day, Mm -hmm. but writing just three good things. And that's totally up to you, whoever it is that's writing the three good things. And the most important part is why you think those, why you thought those things happened to you that day. Mm -hmm. So, we don't know why, but it's important to reflect on, well, what made it possible for that good thing to happen to me and to come into my life today? Um, so it's totally your own interpretation, but it's kind of almost this savoring activity of this was something really good and I want to think about it a little bit. And we know that, again, about a month or so, and you don't have to stop there, you can keep going. Right. Um, I have a friend who I think has gone through at least two or three of the three good things in notebooks that we've handed out at UMC for the Office of Wellbeing. Um, so I know that you know, some folks might have a hard time finding consistency in that, but I think that really is the key behind almost anything you do. If it's good for you and um, helps you feel better, don't stop doing it. Keep it consistent. Same thing for three good things. You can't just think about the good every now and again. You kind of have to be consistent with it. And in that practice, is there evidence or is to do it in the morning versus the evening versus the afternoon? Like, is there a time of day? That's- Great question. Because I like specifics. I do too. And I, I yeah. and I have like a gratitude practice. And I'm like, I'm totally shifting uh, to three good things. But like, where do I need to do it? In my morning, evening, lunch? Do I need to take an afternoon walk? <laughs> per the recommendations of the initial intervention, before bed. At night oh, before bed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. I was totally doing it at the wrong time of day. Because I would usually get up in the morning and do it as part of like kind of the check-in and prep for the day. Mm-hmm. I had been doing it in the evening, but shifted just to um, to do it then. So that's a recalibration for me around this space. And what I think that I I like about getting in a little bit into the weeds around these things, and the conversation, and what your your, your comment just was, are, I hear intentionality in what you're talking about. Is we have to make the time to engage in these practices to see the benefit of them, and we often from my observation of social media um, and and those kinds of more publicly facing spaces, we get the impression often, and it's not that, you know, the wellness folks are, are most of them, I would say, some of them do, but most of them are not actively perpetrating this kind of idea that it's a one and done thing, but it isn't, right? It is this intentionality. It is this, this consistency and habit forming process. So could you talk to us if you have any insights and guidance on how do we make this a practice that we can stick with and how do we get that rolling intentionally in our day-to-day lives where we're all busy with work and school and family and all the things that we're supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. How do we, how do we build this in? 
I think that context you just provided is so important because the the knowledge is not the hard part. Most people already know what's good for them. Most people already have a good idea of, you know, I used to really enjoy this or it was meaningful to me. Um, When you have in a clinical context, when when I have those conversations, it takes almost no effort at all for that individual to immediately delve into all of this stuff that's like, I miss doing this. But that context around... I'm busy. I have all these different things, whether it's actually true in the sense of like, there literally is no time or your mind has come up with this concept of, I don't have any extra time. Um, doesn't necessarily matter because there is just so much going on in people's lives. So how do you maintain a habit? How do you keep it consistent? Um, if you think about kind of, I guess the underlying theory behind this, the stages of change, how do I put something into action? Um, a lot of folks in the wellbeing space might be in that kind of, um, contemplation stage. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I kind of want to do this, but I don't know if I'm ready. And then right. there's more stages to it than that. But one of the more forgotten stages of change that people don't talk about as much is the maintenance phase, right. because it doesn't just stick. Mm-hmm. You know, you can make a change and then it goes away. So making things stick does take this intentionality. It takes specific thought. It is essentially the opposite of autopilot. Mm-hmm. Um, the path of least resistance when it comes to health behavior change will typically mean you're going to go back to doing what you're doing. Um, So just like it is with the, you know, how do we make sure that we're in a good space emotionally? It takes intentionality. It takes paying attention and it keeps, and it takes maybe even tracking it. And maybe one of the most helpful things that I have personally used is um, we can, you you can call it a lot of different things, but one of the, I guess you can just call it um, phoning a friend essentially. And I literally Mm -hmm. actually phone a friend to help me do some of the things I really dislike doing, but is good for me. Um, in this sense, it's with writing. I do not like to write. It is not easy to do for me. And it's very important that I write it's, it contributes to the field. So what do I do? Um, I literally will call one of my friends virtually and we'll join in on that call, set a goal with somebody for an hour and say, all right, at the end of this, here's what I want to have accomplished. So if I don't accomplish it, they know and I'm (laughs) caught. Um, And it's probably the most wildly effective way to do this because someone else is involved. So it kind of comes back again to that. Even if it's not a whole community, just some sort of connection with someone else to help (laughs) facilitate your goal. Um, And usually the friend that I call will not have the exact same goal as me, but we'll be doing the same thing. So we're kind of working together. So I think that's another really helpful strategy to help us maintain something. Let someone else know what we're doing, have Mm -hmm. check-ins, and feel like we're not necessarily beholden to that other person or that we're going to let them down, but to at least have a little bit of that in the background to motivate you. We don't always have the internal motivation, but we can create external motivation. You are listening to the Mayo Lab podcast. For more information and resources, visit themayolab.com. Now, back to the episode. And I want to touch on community, what you were just talking Mm -hmm. about, because there's a book that just came out about the good life, about the Harvard study, about talking about relationships Mm -hmm. and communities and how essential they are to your mental health. Can you speak to that a little bit of like why and just, you know, the importance of that kind of more for our listeners who maybe don't know that study that well or have not heard more about that? I think, so this is kind of like the compendium of a lot of what we've been talking about for a long time as a field, and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that like we are having this empirical work in that domain to essentially 
validate. It's like, okay, like we need to connect with these structures that we are so important to us that we know on their face are important to us. But um, it's always important when we actually have the empirical validation to it. Um, and so I think we've become such an individualistic society over time. And so by that drifting, um, we've lost connection to these threads of our society. And so by coming together, we have support. We have all of these essential needs met um, through our community where for a long time, and actually in a lot of different communities, we see this and we're actually, it's probably underlying a lot of the mental health concerns um, of our youth is this disconnection. So by coming together as a community, what we're finding, right, is that this is actually giving us the support that we need. It's Mm -hmm. giving us kind of essentially like going back in time. So it's like, this is our mental health provider now that we're so willing to access the people around me. So it really does take a village. And mm-hmm. I'm, I think that's what's important for people to know is there's a lot of stuff out there on self-help and that's good. Mm-hmm. We should definitely try to help ourselves if we need to. Mm-hmm. But through these types of studies we're learning, maybe it's actually connecting with the people around you who share similar values to you and people who you care about um, that might actually have as much or maybe even more of an effect as just trying to quote-unquote, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And I think that is such an amazing observation. And also, I would like to offer to folks, because we kind of assume sometimes, you know, in, in countries like the United States, where that individualistic society, cultural aspect is such a key component of how folks here visualize success and, and you know, what what is the penultimate goal of, of our world that you, you almost... Ha- because we are human beings and human beings are inherently not super willing to expend energy. We're lazy, right? Like Mm -hmm. we do the easiest thing. We think of one to the exclusion of the other, right? So we can't have individual success whilst having a community, but that's not necessarily the case. And so finding a way for us to make a balance between those two things, because we know that, that as you just talked about and that Harvard study that Alexis just referenced has been going on for minimally 50 years, probably longer, right? I can't remember the right, the exact date. So we've got a huge amount of data supporting this, this idea of the importance of community, but reorienting our thinking that it's all, it, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. There is a middle ground and we just haven't figured it out yet because we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it. And so coming back again to this idea of intentionality and also like this takes work and time and effort. And and it's not just something that we can set on autopilot and assume is going to be okay. And I would like for us to just switch gears here for a second, because I think what you've covered so far, Nick, has been just incredible and amazing. But I also know you spend a lot of time working with young people and students. And I know you have ideas about how things could be better and what you would like to do in your future work. So I'm going to give you a magic wand and I'm going to say, if you had a magic wand, we're not solving all of the world's problems, but if you had a magic wand and, and had, you know, an unlimited budget, which also you do not have, but mm-hmm. in reality, but it, you know, magic wand moment, what would you do in the next six months that you think would have the biggest impact on a student population or on young people around the issues that we've talked about so far today? If I had a magic wand, which you've turned the tables on me, this is such a therapist question to ask. (laughs) You're welcome. Yeah, I appreciate it. (laughs) Um, If I had a magic wand, I think the 
first word that comes to mind or concept is if we could just get rid of it with our billions of dollars that are in our budget is removing loneliness and creating connection. Mm. Um, I think it's not going to solve everyone's problems in every way, but it's hard to think of a problem that we have in our life that doesn't at least get better with people around us who care about us. Mm-hmm. Um, we are inherently a social species. We, mm-hmm. we really not in, we don't do well only by ourselves. Um, we need people around us to support us, to help us accomplish goals. And if we don't feel like we have that, there's, it's kind of hard. We're, we're, we're working, we're fighting upstream. It's not to say that people who are lonely can't be helped. It's just seems like if we could just improve that, um, we would see differences in youth mental health. We would see differences in youth substance use. Um, we would probably see differences in youth attainment in school to mm-hmm. feel like you're connected to that process. If you're lonely and you don't feel connected, why would you stay in that environment mm-hmm. that feels like you're not, like you don't belong? So I think that's my magic wand answer, if I had one. I love that. And I love that we have through themes about community and connection connectedness going through this entire episode so far. And I feel like that gets us really in a good place because I'm asking you to go in the weeds again on this. If you are experiencing loneliness yourself, you don't feel like you're connected, what are things that you could start doing tomorrow to begin to chip away at that and get yourself into a position of feeling like you have that circle of folks around you who care about you? Because I would offer maybe for many people, you actually have those people around you already. You just maybe don't recognize them as such. So how can you start that process as an individual? Yes. Um, Well, we'd want to probably avoid what in the business we call flooding. So kind of throwing yourself in the middle of the most like social setting you could possibly find. That gives me heart palpitations as an introverted person. I'm like, ooh, no. Yeah. So whether you're introverted or maybe somebody who struggles a little bit with social anxiety, it makes sense that you might have hesitancy or maybe you're just feeling lonely and you're feeling down and it just seems kind of like, oh, I don't really want to get out and do this thing or I don't want to even call this person. Um, So I actually work with a lot of my patients on this exact thing, which is, you know, connection. Um, How do you, you've become disconnected. How do we get you back in? So I think a useful algorithm is, you know, what do you need right now? Do you need just to chat? Like, do you just want to talk to somebody? Um, is that what you're in need of? Um, so who's somebody in your life that you haven't talked to in a while who maybe you don't want to share all the difficulties you're going through, but you at least want to talk to somebody? Think about those people. Or maybe you need a little bit more support. Um, maybe maybe you're established with a therapist. Maybe you're getting the help you need in that way, but you're still feeling isolated. Who's somebody in your phone, in your social group, or text message, who can you contact that you know will listen to you, will talk to you, even if you haven't talked to them in a really long time, who Mm -hmm. can you reach out to? So it's kind of like creating that algorithm of not just kind of randomly opening your phone and calling someone, right? Or going to the next um, social event where there's going to be 20 or 30 people there that you might not know. Uh, I think going for that low-hanging fruit first, just to Mm -hmm. get your feet back out there to have that successful experience of, I feel connected again, is a great place to start. And I have two two thoughts slash comments slash probably will be quest- turned into questions. But one of them is the idea of like social fitness. This was, I, mm. I don't know where I read this or heard this about social fitness is just like physical fitness. You're not going to pick up a hundred pound dumbbell and try and lift it on your own. You're not going to jump into this big pool of people if you're not comfortable. Like you have to start slowly. Um, like I'm not going to run a 5K tomorrow, but I could mm. run 
five minutes. Like, and so just slowly working and starting with one slow interaction and building that up based on where you feel comfortable. And when that switched in my head, I was like, I became so much of a people person so much quicker because it felt more attainable in that way, just to be able to, oh, it's just like fitness. You have to maintain, and then you have to maintain it too, Mm -hmm. kind of like, and continue to work at it. And then the second thought I just had was, I just came out of a season of life where I went through a really hard, we had a family member pass away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, situations, you know, anecdotes excluded from that. Like I needed different support in that time. And I was so ashamed and guilty that I wasn't going to like my quote unquote best friend group for that. Like I needed to go to another person or people for that. And I was, it it clicked for me just actually last week of that's okay. Cause that's what they're skilled in. That's what they, you know, they have empathy. They've been through this and it's okay to have multiple groups of people and friends for different seasons or instances in life. But I think society has told us that you need the one group and like, those are your people and like kind of quantity over quality in that way of like, but it's just gonna be one group and they have to know everyone and everyone has to know each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're bringing up the point of like the shoulds and coulds that therapists get upset at if they're if they're doing the old cognitive yes. behavior therapy, right? Yeah, like, if my therapist is listening, go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I should talk to this group of friends whenever the real answer, right, is what's the most effective thing for me right now, whether it be that scenario or anyone. You know, there's the perfectly right thing that we'll probably never attain, and then there's the most effective thing for any situation. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that baby steps in a, in a good direction, really. And again, coming back to that idea of an intentionality, right? You are making time for these things to happen. And so I'm going to build out one level of the circle around us, right? Now, what are, if we are a family or a friend or um, somebody in an outer circle who's making an observation of someone in our space that may be being disconnected or have been disconnected, how do we as an external person bridge that conversation with that individual to begin to chip away at that social disconnect. Yeah. So if you're the third party, you're noticing something different. Um, You're wanting to reach out. So maybe it's, you notice something different in someone else, or maybe you're wanting to reach out on the other end. Um, I think if as third parties, you know, I guess on the opposite end of how we've been talking about Mm -hmm. how do we make change. So as the friend, sometimes I think it's actually perfectly appropriate to call out what you see in a non-judgmental way. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. like, hey, we haven't talked in two weeks. Like, what's up? Um, and not forcing someone to tell us how they feel, but at least just to let someone know, like, hey, I'm checking in on you. How are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, calling out specifically what you're noticing so that way it doesn't look like it's some sort of judgment to that person. But mm-hmm. a reality is, so the fact is, I haven't talked to you in two weeks. Normally we talk every day. Um, just been thinking about you. Um, so I think paying attention to those things and not, and we do this. I even do this. I'm a mental health professional and I'll come up with these rationalizations like, oh, I'm sure they're okay. And, you know, a lot of times that's true. And then other times there's my friends who actually have been going through something difficult and maybe I've I've heard from them for a while. Um, And so the times I do reach out, I always feel, um, even if it's just, oh, I'm totally fine. I've just, I've been on vacation and I haven't Mm -hmm. been able to talk to you. That's much better than knowing that like, oh no, like you were struggling. I may have noticed something and I didn't ask you about it. Didn't reach out. So I think is the third party to this. Um, Again, I guess back to that whole community, it takes a village is it's not all up to ourselves. It's our, as a social group, um, we should take care of the people that we care about just and that could be as simple as just asking them how they're doing Mm -hmm. and what I love about that particularly too when I have because I'm not always great about it um is the reminder and reinforcement that there are people that 
do care about you and mm-hmm. that you get that reciprocated when you have that check-in with somebody be like, hey, I'm going to talk to you in a minute. How are you doing? I was thinking about you the other day. What's up, right? Um, they will often re come back around and, and then re-engage in those conversations and that helps me feel connected to the people around me in a different kind of way had I not thought, you know, to take the two seconds it took to like, hey, just thinking about you. How's your week going? You know, mm-hmm. um, and I think that re- for me, at least anyway, it reinforces that that connectivity. The The next piece of this, so we're going up one more level, right? So around the people that you immediately t- t- can touch to our larger community. What do you think from your perspective that our communities on a larger scale can start doing differently to reinforce that engagement, to reinforce the, the, you know, and build structures to acknowledge and celebrate the fact that, like you said, we are social creatures. We are social animals. We are not built to live in the world alone. How do we do that on a, on a larger scale? This almost sounds like a question from someone who's interested in sociology or, uh, or well, something like that. Well, you know, that. There, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, I think this might be the most important level. Um, so we've talked about a lot of what we can do. And I think that practicality, definitely we should talk about. But because we have the limitations we do as human beings, our community, our kind of um, social norms that are um, generated by our communities and larger social structures are likely the m- are going to have the most impact mm-hmm. on, on us. So what can we do? I think it's changing um, different structures. Um, and there's a lot of examples of how this has worked. So I think a, the most common example I can think of, so we know that men have a really hard time talking about how they feel. Now, not, not all men, but in general, men seem to have a little bit more difficulty. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons for why that might be. It's probably counter to masculinity or these norms around what it means to be masculine and then maybe talking about your feelings and reaching out to people doesn't fit that. So you've seen some of these interventions where barbershops, where you have people mm-hmm. come in who are mm-hmm. at as their entire job just to talk to you about your feelings or barbers who get trained to just, hey, how's it going? Let's talk about these different things going on in your life. So changing those already existing structures in a way where it's maybe more comfortable for people to Mm -hmm. engage. Um, And then actual engagement of leaders. So there's obviously your you know, de jure governmental leaders where we can work towards making it more of a public health message around, hey, it's okay to reach out for help. Um, here's all the access to mental health resources mm-hmm. in the community. Putting that message out there for everyone to hear equally of, oh, okay, like this is something that we do. Um, so, and then also maybe in more de facto community where um, a lot of times it might be um, centered around spiritual hubs or mm-hmm. religious hubs. So, um, churches, spiritual groups, having those leaders engaged in conversations with individuals about um, normalizing mental health, well being, having conversations about that. Um, and so, tapping your way into all of that. So that way it kind of trickles down to all these things we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. Because if you as an individual aren't hearing that message, it makes it even harder to implement it or it makes it harder to know how to achieve these goals you might have for mental health if you're not hearing about it or learning about it from these different structures that you care about and that you trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the thing is instilling trust from this social norm standpoint and um, organizational standpoint in the different levels of our community. 
That's amazing. I love all of those ideas. Um, I think, and unless Alexis has another question, the last question I wanted to pose to you, because we told you, obviously, we were going to come down here today, and I'm sure you had ideas about what we might be talking about. So is there something that you thought we would talk about today or that you wanted to tell us that we haven't had a chance to cover yet? I think the one thing that we've that we've addressed um, – but maybe not in depth that I think is important to me that I've been looking into is just the profound effect of adolescent, young adult mental health that it's having um, across the country. Um, And we've already talked about how it was already on the rise, but I think the main thing I wanted to point out is that the Surgeon General has been really doing a fantastic job of highlighting probably two of the most important things, which is youth mental health is bad. Mm -hmm. And also social media is probably playing a huge role in that. Mm -hmm. And so the point that I think, if we're talking about practicality Mm -hmm. in today's episode is making sure that our kids feel heard, listened to, talked to, um, and checked in on, even if they seem annoyed or upset, um, because I don't think it can be understated how severe some of these concerns actually are at a rate that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And where people like me, who, again, have the fancy letters and are supposed to know this stuff, have some ideas of how to address this, but honestly feel totally under-equipped and unable to just address the widespread concern that we have. I think a lot of people have good ideas. I think we're headed in the right direction. Um, I think community is a big part of that. But that's the one thing I want to put out there is that um, this is real. Um, It's affecting a lot of people. And the only way to truly start chipping away at this trend is to do exactly what you're all talking about, is to break that stigma, to open up those dialogues, and to pay attention. So um, I don't know that it's anything new, but I guess if I had a closing message, it would be that, is that um, our young people are struggling. Not Not everybody but it rates higher than we've pretty much seen before. So we should pay attention to that and we should focus on that and give them the support that they need. Thank you for that. And thank you for that call out because I think that's a really important conversation that we're going to continue to have in this fall season and into the future. Um, and I think the the bonus, you know, for those of y'all that have been listening so far, is that we've got some really good tips and things you can start doing right now, right, in your own family as an individual. And then for us to start thinking about on a larger scale within our communities about how to begin to address these issues. And and I think the, the one idea I'd like to leave folks with is it's going to take time and effort and that word again, intentionality, right, is be thinking about these things in an ongoing and regular basis, Thank you, Dr. McAfee, for making the time to chat with us today and to share your expertise and your wisdom with our listeners. Um, we're really excited about our ongoing partnership and our and our working relationship. Um, tune into a, our next episode, and we'll we'll love to hear from you all on social media. How are you doing with all of these things that we've been offering to you um, in your own spaces? Are you are you doing those check ins? Are you journaling? Are you um, having those conversations with your kids where they're rolling your eyes going like, yeah, whatever, mom or dad, like, I'm fine. Um, Are you doing those things on a regular basis? We'd love to hear. See you next time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mayo Lab podcast. The Mayo Lab podcast is produced by Dr. Natasha Dieter, Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, Slade Lewis, and Hannah Finch. This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones, and our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. 
For more information on the Mayo Lab podcast, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at the Mayo Lab. If you enjoyed listening to the Mayo Lab podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, and their guests on the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters related to his or her health or the health of a child.